Uh, if you're looking on the Pew Bible in front of you, it's found, found on page 810. Uh, it's also printed in your worship guide. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, reading through the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, in Matthew chapter 5 here in verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has been working out this principle in the verses that follow verse 20 here. And in these six antitheses that follow Jesus' statement where he says, You've heard it said, but I say to you, What he's been doing is he's been exposing how the Pharisees and the scribes were falsely interpreting the law of God. And as well as their wisdom that was leading them actually further away from God and alienating themselves from God as opposed to drawing them closer to himself. Now in Jesus' teaching, he wasn't doing away with the Old Testament and ushering in something completely new. As we've said all along through this uh, study here in Sermon on the Mount, that he's actually raising the bar on God's law and putting it in its rightful place, taking it from the external outward behaviors and moving it into the internal heart level. And so in today's passage, here at the end of chapter 5, Jesus is going to deepen our understanding of what God's standards look like in the matters of revenge and loving those that are hard to love. And so let's go before the Lord and ask Him to bless our time before we come into His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit now, come and illumine your word. For, again, if we come to your word flippantly and on our own uh, agenda, and your Holy Spirit does not show up, we, what we're doing here is an exercise in futility. So would you come now, would you make your word a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that we might see Jesus Christ. Lord, come now, we pray. We desperately ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who gives all good things. Amen. Well, you don't have to teach your children how to retaliate. Jessica and I have never sat down with our four four children and said, okay, guys, here's what you do if one of your siblings, or anyone else for that matter, does something that you don't like. But if you come to our house and you spend more than about a half an hour, you'll hear one of them cry the battle cry of, that's mine. Give that back. And then some tuggle will ensue, and then they'll both come running to us, pleading their case. 
Why did you do what you did? Well, he took it from me. Why did you do what you did to her? Because they did it first. And on and on it goes. Well, retaliation has been going on throughout the ages and in every culture. It's nothing new. And this innate sense of revenge when we're wronged is not relegated just to little children or even teenagers. But we as adults as well, we perpetuate this same mentality as evidenced by feuds that take place between families or even between family members within the same family. They go on down after generation after generation like the infamous Hatfields and McCoys. Or we see it in gangs between the Bloods and the Crips who are always trying to one-up one another. Uh, When they do something, the other one has to ratchet it up another level. And so in our culture, retaliation is often accepted and even encouraged. And the way to seeking justice is to take justice in your own hands and make it happen for yourself. But in reality, each one of us in our flesh, we're driven to look out for number one, and that's it. And we're going to defend our rights at all costs. But what Jesus calls us to here in this text is a radically new perspective and a new pattern of responding that can only be fueled and lived out by the power of his gospel. See, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are condemned by all these standards that Jesus is laying out here in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Christ lays out what a gospel-powered response in these areas looks like. So we're going to see three of these uh, this morning. First, we're going to see how the gospel frees us from seeking revenge. And the next, we'll see how the gospel compels us to love even our enemies. And then lastly, we'll see how the gospel conforms us to the very character of our Heavenly Father. So first, the gospel frees us from seeking revenge. Look at what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament law of lex talionis, the law of talent. And he's saying here that the law that Moses gave was to govern retaliation in respects to sin that was committed against individuals. And so this law was designed to guide the judges within the courts. How they made uh, judgments on the crimes that were committed in those cases. And the law was also designed to make sure that punishment didn't get out of hand and it fit whatever the crime was. And so the law wasn't a call for vengeance at all. It was a call for justice and whatever the punishment was that was handed down. But see, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were taking this law that was meant to be relegated within the court system and they were taking it and using it in their personal matters in order to justify their own vendettas against one another. And Jesus says that the Christian here is not to resist the one who is evil or the one who does evil to us. Now, knowing our natural fleshly resistance to this principle that he's laying out here, what he does is he kindly lays out four scenarios, giving us uh, situations where we might be tempted to retaliate and seek revenge. And in each of these scenarios, Jesus gives his interpretation of the law the right interpretation, and he condemns a spirit of revenge and hatred towards others. He commands the the Christian to respond differently in both their word and in their deed with a, a spirit of love that is reflective of the God who loves them. So in verse 39, in the first Uh, scenario he lays out, he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
So what Jesus is dealing with is with our personal dignity, our reputation here. And if, when it's demeaned, when it's attacked by others. And this act here is a, is a backhanded slap to the face. It's when someone takes their right hand and they slap you on your right cheek with a backhanded slap. That's an extreme insult. And it was in the Middle East and still is today in our own culture if that were to happen. But Jesus not only commands that we absorb the blow, but he says, turn the other cheek. That's radical. That goes against every grain of our inclinations. And what's in view here is, again, do we defend our rights and our reputation? Because if we're honest, how much of our day is spent defending what others think about us and our reputations? Not only outwardly, but also in our thoughts and in our mind as well. Because see, when our reputation is attacked, we get defensive. And then we go on the offensive, conjuring up ways in which we can get back, maybe even sometimes worse than what was done to us, because we're that fueled by anger. Because somebody demeaned us. But Jesus says, if you're a follower of his, your reputation, your identity, it's secure with God. Because Psalm 16 tells us that if we are in Christ, that we are the ones that he delights in. He says we are his glory, is how the psalm puts it. And so if someone hurts our feelings by attacking our reputation, we can absorb that. We can forego the retaliation. And so we trade insult with grace. Because grace has been given to us by a God who knows our sin, but didn't retaliate and respond likewise to us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his work, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes this. He says, The only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it doesn't find any resistance in its, in, that it's looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacle but only patient endurance, its sting is drawn. And at last, it meets an opponent which is more than its match. You see what he's saying? He's saying, in other words, retaliation never overcomes an evil insult. It only just fuels it to greater heights. The only way to overcome an attack on our dignity is the pathway of meekness. This is what Jesus calls us to earlier in this, uh, in this chapter when he says we're called to be peacemakers, to seek unity and peace with one another. And this is what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to respond with grace to those who demean us, revile us, because in the gospel, evil has met its match. It is no match for the gospel. But see, we often think that we have to fight back harder to defend ourselves, because if not, we're going to be perceived as being weak, or we might get taken advantage of. And see, this is the message that the world continues to fuel in our lives. But the reality is, is we actually are stronger when we turn the other cheek. And we don't have to defend our rights and don't have to seek revenge. Because let me ask you, how many times has anyone ever been drawn to the love of Christ and been converted because of the retaliation of one of his followers? Nobody. They're drawn to the stark contrast that they see in the response of his people. The love that is otherworldly that comes from Christ alone. And they are humbled by that. And see the love of the Father. This is the kind of 
of love and the kind of gospel-driven reaction that we need in this community that we live in. It doesn't respond with taking up vengeance and attacks when we are attacked. The next example that Jesus moves into is related to our personal possessions. When those come under attack, he says in verse 40, he says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, Jesus is referring to the, the inner and the outer garments that were worn in his day. And the tunic was kind of the, the shirt that was worn closest to uh, the skin. And you could be sued for that. So Jesus says, if you're sued for that and you must give that to the one that you owe, he says, go ahead and offer your cloak as well. Now, you may remember in Exodus 22, the the cloak was the outer garment, it was the outer coat, and there was stipulation that if someone, uh, you could use this collateral or or financial pledge, but if you did so, that coat had to be returned to you by sundown because it was your source of warmth through the night. But can you imagine the humiliation of having to go back each and every day to the person that you owed and ask for your coat back for that night and then again relinquish it again the next day? The principle that Jesus is driving home here is not that we should never go to court or we shouldn't befriend lawyers. No, he's saying there's something a matter of the heart here that I'm going after. We must forego our own rights for the sake of his kingdom. See, if someone wants to sue you, we don't have to stand on our rights because we have been given Christ and he is more than enough that we need to sustain us and be our defender for us. The Apostle Paul modeled this in his life when he didn't cling to his Roman citizenship. Because see, as a Roman citizen, it was law that you could not be beaten by a Roman magistrate without a due trial. Paul experienced many beatings. And several of those, he received the beating, and only afterwards did he let it be known that he was a Roman citizen. He didn't claim his rights beforehand. See, Paul gave up his rights because what was at stake for the kingdom of God was greater than standing on his personal rights. And so what this call to abandon our own rights and even our own possessions for the sake of Christ, what it does is it reveals how attached we really are to the things that we own. So you and I spend so much of our time trying to secure and defend our stuff. But as we just sang a little bit ago, We must let goods and kindred go. But because we're so attached to our possessions, they often come to define who we are as a person. And so our thought process is, well, if I let those things go and I give those things up, not only what am I going to have, but who am I going to be? Where am I going to derive my comfort, my power, my control over others if I let those things go? But if you're in Christ, the answer is if you lose your things For the sake of Christ, you will actually experience freedom because all of your desires will be found and met in Christ. This third example that Jesus brings up deals with our personal liberties. He says, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. We know that Rome occupied Palestine, and so the Roman uh, soldiers could enlist the Jewish people to carry various things for them for them on their own behalf for a thousand paces and they had to do it this is what we see when we see the uh, crucifixion narrative and we see Simon of Cyrene he is called on to carry the cross up to the hill where Jesus would be crucified for a thousand paces and once again 
Imagine the shame that they experience every time one of these soldiers says, hey, you, come here, come carry this. Do my dirty work for me. But Jesus says, after you've done the required mile, volunteer to go another mile. And the point that Jesus is making is that his followers do the unexpected. They go above and beyond what is required. Because of the grace that has been lavished upon us in Christ, we seek to win others for Christ for the sake of the gospel. And once again, we see the Apostle Paul as an example of this in Philippians 2. If you remember, he's enchained in, in Rome, in prison, and he's chained to imperial guards that are with him 24-7. And Paul says, okay, if I've got to be chained to this, I've got a captive audience, pun intended, I'm going to preach the gospel to them. They can't go anywhere. What are they going to do? So he uses the opportunity to show forth the love of Christ as he is imprisoned in Rome. Now listen to what he says in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Philippians. He says, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's personal freedom was invaded and taken away from him. But yet, because he knew that Jesus had secured his eternal freedom, he was willing to be okay where he sat in prison, knowing that it was for the gospel, and so he could repay evil with good. As believers, we're not called simply to serve in ways that are easy for us or that don't involve any self-sacrifice. We're to go above and beyond our own rights and our own responsibilities so that others will take notice and they go, who does something like that? unless they're compelled by a greater love outside of themselves. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf, willingly going beyond what was required of Him, we're called to be humiliated for His sake and for the sake of His kingdom. The last example Jesus gives, He deals with our personal resources that we have. Verse 42, He says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And Jesus is talking about how do we respond when there are those who have need around us? Only when Christians show gracious care and sacrifice for the sake of others will those others see the God-given meaning of the law that Jesus is applying here. But see, we often want to question or or base whether we're going to help someone or not on whether we think they deserve our help. But as Christ's followers, we're called to take care of people whether they deserve our help or not. We're called to give people what they need, not what they deserve. This doesn't mean that we don't apply wisdom and use discernment in every situation. But we meet the needs of others, whether they deserve it or not, because we as sinners have been given what we do not deserve. And Christ has met our need by sacrificing for himself, for us. See, too often we find our security in our wealth, whether that's in having a lot or whether that's in having very little. And this is evidenced by our giving to Christ's church. Because even conservative statistics on the conservative side of things says that only about 15 to 20% of regular attenders tithe on a regular basis. That's very telling about where our security is. See, God puts us in situations to challenge our wealth and where we're putting our security. And it's in these situations that reveal the extent to which we have truly been set free by Christ. 
See, Jesus is revealing how the gospel changes our hearts from the very core, freeing us from the love of money and the imprisonment of money. And one way that growth in the gospel changes us is that we desire to give more and more of our stuff away and our resources to others in need for the building up and the profiting of his kingdom rather than the sustaining of our own little kingdom and our own comforts. How generous are you to those who are in need around you? If and when you give, do you do so begrudgingly? Or do you do so so that you can get noticed and people can say, man, he's a generous guy or she's a generous woman? Or do you, all the time while you're doing that, or if you don't do that, are you thinking about, how could I use that money or those resources on myself and on my own pleasures? See, the call is to give away selflessly and freely for the benefit of others. And here Jesus is turning the tables on the Pharisees and the scribes and once again elevating the law. And our reactions as Christians in these various circumstances and scenarios that Jesus has laid out here reveals the places where we're still in bondage and subordinate to other things than to Jesus himself. When we seek revenge on others, what we're saying is that my rights are more important than the glory of God. And because God is committed to transforming our heart and to upending our idols and aligning us with His, the Spirit works in us to uproot and destroy anything that rivals Himself. Our rights, our possessions, our reputation, our resources. As Jesus endured the humiliation of His own enemies, He didn't stand on His rights before the Father, and He had every right to do so. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Here, the the one who created all things, who ruled and reigned over all things, came as a lowly servant for the sake of others, his enemies. See, Jesus sees much more clearly than we do. Because he knows that if we live by this principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that revenge is never going to stop. At least until we're all blind and toothless. Because revenge only begets greater revenge. And the cycle never ends. Has God's secure love for you, has it freed you from self-protection? And moving you to greater self-sacrificial love? Next, the gospel compels us to love even our enemies. Verse 43, he continues on in the same vein. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, looking back to Leviticus 19, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, the Pharisees and the scribes were distorting the law of God, and they were thinking, okay, if we're to love our enemies, then it stands to reason that we can hate, excuse me, if we're to love uh, our neighbors, there we go, it stands to reason that we can hate our enemies. Because what's the point in loving somebody you hate? And so the law of Moses that Jesus gives, it was not intended to justify, but intended to restrain hatred. So Jesus makes it clear 
who our neighbor is, if you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, you have two people from opposing cultures that were at odds with one another, and one comes along, a man in need, and extends help only after being looked over by several other people. He takes him down to the inn and provides for him, provides financially for him to be cared for until he gets better. And Jesus is revealing that in this story that our neighbors, anyone that we come in contact with who has a need that we can meet and help with. But is it really possible to love those who sinned against us and who do things to demean us and revile us? Well, the answer is no if we're living by the principles and the philosophies of our culture. Because that says dismiss those people or get back at those people who do those things to you. Only Christ's embrace of us when we see that we were his enemies. Only that provides sufficient and compelling motive for us to respond counterculturally by loving even our enemies. And the reason why we're to love, Jesus says, is so that, in verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And Jesus shows how God shows his love for his enemies. He says he makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good. And the rain to shower down on the just and the unjust. This is what we call, theologians call, God's common grace. He gives indiscriminately to those who may not deserve it, but he gives any and all, blessing them. Not based on what they deserve, but what they need. God, because of his holiness, he has every right to retaliate against his enemies. But instead, he shows his mercy and patient endurance. And the apple doesn't fall from, far from the tree because Jesus himself exemplified this kind of love in his life and his death and resurrection. Because when Jesus and his enemies were paying him evil by mocking him, beating him, spitting on him, putting him on a cross, he returned evil with love. Jesus has told us back in verse 10 through 12 here in the Sermon on the Mount that we... We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be reviled. If we're going to align ourselves with Jesus Christ, we need to expect persecution. But here, his call is to love and pray for those who revile against you and who demean you. Jesus on the cross, before he takes his last breath, you remember what he says Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Praying for his enemies that he was going to the cross for. See, something incredible happens when we pray for our enemies. And I know what some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I'll pray for my enemies, all right. No, I'm talking about sincerely bringing them before the throne of grace. I was talking this past week with someone who was sharing a story about a relationship that they had with someone in their family that was really hard. And from the beginning, this relationship, uh, this person treated them with very much uh, contempt and said things even outwardly to them. Uh, and it was a very hard relationship for them to be in. And they couldn't get around, away from this relationship because they were encountered this person on a regular basis. And so the person I was talking to said they decided that they would start praying that God would give them compassion and give them love for this person that was so hard to love. Well, what happened is over time, that's what happened. God gave this person compassion to love, even when it was hard to love. And this person never changed, even till her death. 
but yet she was able to find love for this person because God supernaturally gave it to her when she couldn't muster it up and manufacture it on her own. Think of that family member, that coworker that you work with, that classmate that you're at odds with. That's the person that God's calling you to love and calling you to pray for. Jesus separates his followers from everyone else by piercing questions here in verse 46 and 47. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And he's taking these extremes because, as you know, tax collectors were not very well liked in that culture. They extorted money and they did things that were not above reproach. And so he says, even if they love, what is that saying if that's the only the level that you love? If you only love those who are like you, how are you different? Even in a fallen world, everyone expects you to love your own. There's nothing commendable to loving when it's convenient for you to love. You don't need God to love like this. But if we want to display the love that God has for sinners, we have to start loving those who are not only different than us, but those who are reviling us and attacking us. Because our Father, He first loved us when we were His enemies. Do you love in a different manner than an unbeliever? Do people look at you and they see your love for others and say, there's something different there that they're motivated by? Do you desire others, even your enemies, to come to know the saving love of Jesus Christ? Do you pray for them? In Romans 9, Paul expresses this kind of love to his enemies when he says, if at all possible, if I could forego my salvation and I spend eternity in hell, but yet it would mean that my enemies would have eternal salvation in Christ, then I would do it. I remember Stephen in Acts where he's standing before his enemies and he's pleading with them and preaching the gospel and one by one, they pick up stone after stone and throw it at him until he dies. Giving his own life for the sake of the gospel that others might hear and come to faith. See, when we come to know this kind of love, this unbounded, radical love, it can only happen as we see that God has poured out his love on us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he grows us in gratitude in our hearts that we might desire to imitate this kind of love that we see exemplified in our Heavenly Father. Finally, and much more briefly, the gospel conforms us to the very character of our Heavenly Father. So if we believe the truths of God's word, then we can know that the promise of the gospel that says that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We've been brought into the family. And an outworking of our union with Christ is this desire and this ability to love even our enemies. Because when we're united to Christ, we're transformed so that the fruit of this change bears itself out in the way that we deal with others. And we have this growing trajectory of love that knows no limits and knows no bounds. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.1. He says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ Jesus loved us and he gave his life up for us. And look here in the last verse of verse 48 in this chapter. Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Jesus is again going back to Leviticus 19. You shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. And Jesus' words here are really a summation of all that he's been saying throughout chapter 5 here. Because he began in verse 16 saying that his mission was to come and fulfill the law of God. And then from 17 on to the end of this chapter, he's been clarifying and putting the law in its rightful place, elevating it. He's been making it very clear what God requires of the law. That he requires perfection. No stain, no blemish, not lacking in anything. The law is a reflection of the very character of God who is perfect. And as his followers, we are called to imitate and be perfect as he is perfect. But you and I don't have to spend more than a few moments with ourselves to know that we're not perfect. We are condemned by the law each and every day as we see the ways that we don't live up to it. And so how can God insist that his children be perfect when the law condemns us for our murderous, our adulterous, our lustful thoughts? and our actions towards others. It's because God is both the just and the justifier. See, by demanding a sacrifice, he demonstrates his justice and his holiness and perfection. But then by providing the sacrifice that he commands and demands, he shows us his mercy and his love. And everything that the law required, Jesus fulfilled and accomplished in his sinless life, death, and resurrection. The perfect son died for imperfect, angry, vengeful, murderous, lustful sinners like you and me. The only way that we acquire this perfection that is needed to stand before holy God is submitting ourselves humbly before the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing that he did it on our behalf. Only when we say, I cannot live up to this standard, God. I admit that. I confess that. I fail miserably every day. But yet I'm putting my faith in the one who went to Calvary's cross, who lived a sinless life, who took upon everything that I endure, and yet did it without grumbling, and did it all the way to his death on the cross so that his righteousness can be clothed on me and I become righteous and perfect in your sight. That's where I lay all my doing down, and I trust in the Savior Jesus Christ. See, we won't be perfect in our actions because we've already fouled that up and messed that up. We can't go back and redo it. But we have all the perfection that we will ever need to stand before a holy God because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, this is the great exchange of the gospel. I get what I don't deserve, and he gets what he didn't deserve. Yet I stand hidden in Christ. That's what Paul says. For I have died, and my life is hidden with Christ in God. So now it comes down to the practical million-dollar question. How do we really love our enemies and those who are hard to love? I think one important way that we begin to love across all boundaries and love those even who are hard to love or who are contempt, they have contempt towards us or they revile us or they persecute us is that we have to abandon our complacency in our lives. The nothing that Jesus has laid out here in the Sermon on the Mount hints of ease and complacency. Complacency is an enemy to this kind of biblical love. So our relationships are hard. I don't have to tell you how much work have to go into our relationships, into our marriages, 
But we have to be all in. We have to be fully devoted to this call to love, unlike the world. And having been saved by the grace of the gospel, we're compelled to love in this kind of costly living in love that can only come through the power of the Spirit. Okay, so what do we do when we fail? Because you and I will fail. And we're going to act out in our anger. And we're going to seek revenge when we've been wrong. What do we do? We cry out to our dad. Abba, Father. And we run to the open arms of our Heavenly Father who embraces us. And who reminds us, you are forgiven. Because I see you in light of my son. And we run to the one who lives, who knows how we live and knows what we face each and every day and who endured that perfectly. We run to the Father whose love never dries up and whose grace towards us is abounding. And we run to the one who promises to supply every amount of wisdom and care and power that we need to live out of this perfection that is already ours in Christ and that will one day be fully realized at the Son's return. Jesus didn't stand on his rights and retaliate against his enemies, but he made himself of no reputation for the sake of those around him. As followers of Christ, you and I are called to do likewise in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we're united to him, the gospel frees us to do this. Because we've been adopted as sons and daughters. And so therefore, may we do the unexpected. May we give the very shirt off of our backs. May we go the extra mile for the sake of the gospel so that God can use us in the lives of the world to look and see that there is something different here that I need to investigate and that we can see men, women, and children come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he can be glorified as we suffer for his sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths hit home to the very core because we are people who love to establish our reputations. And Lord, we love to have power over other people when we're wronged. And in our flesh, more times than not, we act out in ways that are not glorifying to you in ways that you've called us to live. But thanks be to God that we have a Savior who clothes us in his righteousness, who didn't respond when he was reviled, but yet endured on the cross so that we can not only seek forgiveness, but that we could actually have power to live this way. So Lord, I pray that you would arrest our hearts, that you would convict us where there are people that we need to seek out and seek forgiveness from and grant for forgiveness to, even when they may not ask for it so that we might see the healing balm of the gospel and that we might be able to love without bounds to see you work in and through us to bring glory to your name. For it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.